Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping this Holiday Week podcast on Tuesday at 10 a.m. on July 3rd, though you won't hear it until the 5th. This week, as all weeks, though, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everybody. Stephanie Armour of the Wall Street Journal. Good morning. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. We also have our Bill of the Month interview this week. It's with reporter Stephanie O'Neill, who wrote about a family with some really unlucky accidents and some really outrageous therapy bills. But first, the news. The Department of Health and Human Services put out some numbers yesterday about the state of the Affordable Care Act marketplaces. And interestingly to me, at least, while they tried to suggest that things aren't going well, the numbers themselves suggest that despite all their efforts to undermine the market, things aren't actually going all that badly. Who wants to talk about what they found? First of all, we do have to say congratulations to Margo. It's it's our first pod (laughs) wedding. Margo Sanger-Katz got married to Dan Friedman on... On Saturday. Now we can go ahead and talk about Obamacare. Okay. <laughs> and, we're, and we're waiting. But she wouldn't let me say it beforehand, so I've been bursting. And we're waiting for our second pod baby, which maybe we'll have some news on that next week. But ACA numbers. They went up. I mean, yeah. they're down from their peak a couple of years ago, but the number of people that sign up versus the number of people who actually pay, what we just got was the figures on payments. Yes, it's called effectuated right. enrollment. So it always goes down because people sign up and then don't pay. That that happens every year under both administrations. And that happens in the private insurance, non-Obamacare market as well. People don't always follow through on what they think they want to buy. Um, but the the what they call effectuated enrollment, which is like a really lousy word. It just means people who are actually paying their pre- premiums. I guess it's, um, it's people who paid their first month premium, first month right? premium, right? They, they'll it'll continue to decline over the course of the year. Probably it usually does, but it, it was a little bit. Was it three hundred thousand more? It wasn't a huge increase over last year, but given but it was higher, yes, it did. It did rise at this point, apples to apples from last year, and that was a surprise uh, to many people, given all the chaos around the ACA, the expense expense of the premiums, although. Most most people in the exchange are subsidized. The uh, the less outreach done by this administration compared to the prior administration. So the fact that it crept up a bit as of this day um, or last month um, is is it was a surprise. It, I mean, I think people thought it would drop. But of course, it that, wasn't what you oh, saw. Yeah. Sorry, it wasn't what you saw the administration focus on. Right. Um, you right. saw them focus on the other numbers, which you know were that people who don't get subsidies that they are dropping out at, at a larger rate um, and and not getting insurance or paying for those premiums and and whether that's on the exchanges or off the exchanges. Um, And I think that that was interesting because both of those numbers are, you can kind of talk about silver loading as as effects for either of those things. And of course, that wasn't brought up at all um, by the administration. And I don't think it was that much of a surprise that, frankly, that the unsubsidized population went down because um, you you really don't know what's happening to that group. You, you did have um, premiums go up. You do have people who move to um, other types of insurance. You have people who are eligible for Medicaid 
So there's a lot of churn already in the market. I don't think these numbers were really, frankly, quite that surprising in terms of that drop. Well, as Julie pointed out right before we started taping, um, some of those people may have gotten jobs because right. the, the uninsurance and job-based insurance. Right. right. So that, so some of those people are. We don't know that the people who were the unsub. Two things about the unsubsidized. Just about every week we say it's really expensive for unsubsidized people, and both parties are talking about costs. Neither of which have come up with a solution. But it's um, you know healthcare expensive. If you're unsubsidized, it costs, and you want a comprehensive plan, it costs a lot of money. So that's, that's the, some people cannot afford it. It is a problem if you're, you know, making $98,000 and the subsidy cutoff is 96 or whatever for a family of four. Um, the other thing is we don't know what's happened to those people. We don't know. They're not in this market, in these statistics. We don't know whether they're getting insurance through a new job, whether they're getting insurance elsewhere. We just don't. Or whether they're uninsured. We don't know. And this is the market. These un- unsubsidized people are the ones that we're sort of looking to see what happens in the coming year with no mandate and with uh, associated health plans and short-term plans. Is that where they go? Big, a lot of guesswork. Right that now. will be the really interesting number. Right. Once we, don't we see those plans active, um, what who, will happen to that and population? Who, buy, who buys them? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, there's every think tank and every you know expert has a different prediction of yeah, the, think, the ripple effect through the market. I think one of the quirks, and Anna, you sort of touched on this, was that you know if you go back to last October when the president canceled the the you know cost sharing reduction subsidies for the insurance companies, that was sort of intended to blow up the market, but it ended up having this this odd impact is that insurers, state insurance regulators, and the insurance themselves went back and they basically took all that money and they loaded it onto the silver premium so that if you were subsidized and getting and getting a silver plan, that sort of mid-level plan, uh, you wouldn't see any increase. The insurers, that basically it was being paid by the federal government just out of a different pocket. But the, the result of that was that it made a lot of other plans, if you were getting a subsidy, way cheaper. So suddenly there were all these bargains. So I, Bargains I think, on premiums. Right, bargains right. on premiums. Yeah, yes. necessarily on the deductibles and other out of a but zero premium. Yeah. Right. Of course, it well, makes that sense made. that you're keeping your insurance if it <laughs> yes. costs you zero premiums. Yes. But that made it very attractive to more individuals, and more individuals had access. Yeah, zero is a nice price tag if you're buying something. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. I mean, yes. as, we, as we have talked about, you know, many times, it is way expensive to use your insurance in a lot of these plans. You have multi-thousand dollar deductibles and surprise bills and, and in-network and out-of-network issues. But yes, I think that the fact that there were a lot of zero premium plans out there probably kept those numbers higher, which yeah. the report also didn't really talk about. Yeah. Um, and and also the, you know, the talk that there was, there has been some muttering that they might actually not allow what they call that silver loading, putting all those, putting all that money that the insurers have to provide at discounts to those lower income people on the silver plans. Although I guess the last They've time- They've said they're allowing them for next for year. Next, yes, yes, there's no time. Last, we don't know about it. 2020, but the coming year, 2019, there would be allowed. They said it, they needed to do regulation and there just wasn't enough time should they pursue that. And that was Alex Azar himself asked right. at a mm-hmm. hearing, said that, that they weren't going to do that. Um, so so where are we with, with the ACA? I mean, you know, there was a lot of gloom and doom predicted for this coming year because Congress got rid of the, the mandate. But we're seeing, you know, the, the rate filings that we've seen so far are kind of all over the place. Some of them are going up a lot. Some of them aren't going up at all. Most I mean, of them are going up. I mean, a few states. Are Generally, we, they're going up. Are we but you s- are seeing some reductions and you're seeing more carriers come in. Right. I mean, That's I think that really reflects, significant thing. I right. think that reflects sort of the strength and, and profitability that insurers were starting to see in this market. Um, they finally raised premiums enough to make a profit. <laughs> but they're figuring it out. Right. I mean, by and large, the, the for insurers, the market has become more attractive in many ways. And 
just but that is really fascinating considering all the uncertainties that have been there the individual mandate and we when you ask where is the ACA right now what I think the fascinating issue is that I keep going back to is it's it's increasingly being defined by the states which is the states right now are just scrambling with so many different approaches whether it be New Jersey with its individual mandate Vermont with its insurance requirement um, states looking to ban short-term or association health plans so you're seeing this real tension pay out play out and that will have a big effect I think on premiums too so we're going to be back to what what you have available depends on where you live yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Supreme yeah, Court that way, made, it's more. always been that way under even under the ACA which was supposed to make things more uniform there was state variability from the beginning in terms of who was going to run an exchange and how. And, and then the Medicaid decision by the Supreme Court certainly became much more of a have-and-have-not scenario than we, uh, than the, the authors of the bill anticipated or than any of us anticipated before that Supreme Court ruling. It is each year it gets, uh, the, the variability gets larger, although there's some states that are both trying to undermine and stabilize simultaneously. We can maybe mm-hmm. catch up on right. state activity in a few weeks. Well, right? I, I think we're seeing it you know, kind of shake out where the, the lowest income are kind of benefiting the most and where those who who have more um, are really struggling. And as we mentioned, because the premiums are so high that even they can't afford them, but they don't get subsidies. And I have to wonder, you know, given all the chaos going on in Congress right now, is there any will to even try and help them? Is this just going to be a state thing that that they have to do? Um, because I mean, we have now the Supreme Court to deal with, um, and I you know, and there was a hearing. Um, I'm time is slipping away from me. I think it was last week in the Senate on um, lowering health care costs. That's and what I was going to bring up. It's yeah, fascinating. It, it yeah. was fascinating. Um, I didn't really see anything emerge though, and maybe you felt differently. That was like, here's what we can do, and here's what we're willing to. At this Um, stage, it's just blame the other party. But at the other (laughs) hand, this is like the first, I mean, we've had so much talk about the Affordable Care Act and what to do with it. And this is the first time I'm seeing a concerted attempt on the Hill to try and focus on costs. You're just not seeing how do we bring down healthcare costs other than kind of the drug pricing. So, I mean, it's, I I don't have a lot of faith in where it will go, but it is an interesting development. I don't think it'll help right now that any of those people who are sort of earning more and getting the super high premiums. But as I, I mean, I think I said this in our, the week we were in California, that the conversation was about to shift. The political conversation between now and November was about to switch to costs and Congress was beginning to talk about costs. But once DOJ joined the Texas and Wisconsin and the other conservative states in the lawsuit uh, against uh, pre-existing condition protections, politically, that's going to dominate. That'll be the, what we hear about most between now and November, I Especially think, just on the political. The and now, and the Supreme Court is also going to take up a lot of oxygen. So is there going to be a bipartisan deep dive into how do we fix health care costs? Between a sustainable, smart way between now and November, I would be surprised. Pre-existing conditions is a much sexier one-liner. Yeah, than, and the know, Republicans don't want to have together. to defend that. I mean, right. they're they, you know, it's like you know, the, politically, they were not thrilled. Yeah, I think the window for this bipartisan bill was when they were finishing the budget back in what right. was that February, and then they just didn't but, do but it. Windows for bipartisanship in this town in this particular time in our nation's history close very quickly, and that one did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so, well, the the other big news on the theme of states going their own way. Um, last Friday afternoon, a U.S. District Court uh, blocked Kentucky's Medicaid waiver that included a work requirement. How big a deal is this? 
It seems like that, you know, obviously this is the first one we're, we're hearing from. Um, there are you know, a few other states that have gone that route as well. And, and other seven others that, that want to do that have requested the ability to have work requirements. And Arkansas is already in effect, right? That I, you might I'm be right. I'm pretty sure yeah. it is. They were the first to start. Right. Um, so but this, this was the first to go to court. This is the first to go that we're seeing a, a reaction from court. And I think that that's going to give some pause to to a lot of people um, while they're trying to figure these out and um, maybe the administration to kind of work with them. And, and because obviously the Trump administration really wants this as a way to um, bring down state costs and, and kind of limit Medicaid and, and limit Obamacare ultimately. Um, so I think that we'll see them trying to work out a way that they can get around, you know, I guess, what is it, Alex Azar just needs to consider like how many, people, and then, yeah, how many people would lose coverage, <laughs> right. I believe, was what he fa- According to the judge, he, he failed, failed to, to consider to the consider. number of people who would lose coverage. Right. Which so in Kentucky, make a difference right. which in Kentucky the governor was basically saying, you know, if that number was at 100,000. I mean, yeah. I mean, he was saying, yay, we're going to get you know, 100,000 people off of, of Medicaid. So in, in Kentucky, in this particular case, it was very explicit that the governor who wanted the work requirements was saying it's going to fewer people will be on Medicaid. I don't think we know based on this preliminary, that's not a preliminary, but this first case, I don't think we know the fate of work requirements overall in the United States. I think we know that the Kentucky one in its present form is not allowed, according to this judge. I guess it'll be appealed. I haven't seen an appeal file, but I assume it will be. And that there are slightly other versions in other states and I don't. We haven't heard the end of this story. I think. I think it's, what we're going to see next, if we if we keep our eyes out, is I think we're going to see a lot more lawsuits filed in other states. Um, my sense is that those are probably already ginning up. The one issue, frankly, that I I don't know is this is a D.C. Circuit Court. So ultimately, depending on where this goes, wouldn't that affect court cases that could come in other states? So it could potentially have. S- some impact on those. That's yes, what but we've I'm, seen split. We've seen right. split decisions on Obamacare before, which is how right. they get to the Supreme Court. Right. So I, I don't. I think we'll have a lot of law. I agree. Yeah, I'm, I'm right. guessing. We're have a lot of lawsuits, right. and it'll probably take two years to resolve one. Yeah, and in the meantime, they'll continue to march forward. I think. I don't think this will halt anything that the administration does in terms of approvals. Well, the uh, Kentucky governor, though, has said that he would stop. Right. Well, that's the big the issue. Right. Expansion. If you know, but at what point does he decide that when it's finally? According to when all the appeals are well, the executive right? order says that it needs to be the final stage, like when they can't appeal it any further if. It's it's blocked by the court. I mean, that's an issue in several states where the governors have said, if I don't get work requirements, I'm going to end mm-hmm. expansion of the governor or the state legislature. And some of them have some trigger language if certain funding things happen that Medicaid expansion goes away. The question is, do they, you know, at the end of the day, are they going to actually take away health care from a lot of poor people in their states? And, you know, Bevin... Politically, that's tough. Bevin ran on dismantling Obamacare. I mean, that And then was he his, kind of walked it back election night... <laughs> And even a few days before, I mean, he's he hates it. He's trying to change it. He's he's made significant sta- changes to his state, but he did not repeal it. And in fact, the Kentucky story, many of us were watching before Congress tried to repeal because Kentucky did walk back and slow things down. And because and, it's hard to take away health care from people. And and, you know, you, you can find sympathetic families to tell their stories. I mean, they they get on local TV and people say, how can you take health care away from this poor family? And um, it's hard to take things away from people. And that's what happened in Congress last year. Although and he did just, I mean, on... Uh, he took on away money. vision and dental, right. but you're not going to get a 
he took vision and dental from adults. Kids, I think, by mm-hmm. law have to have it. Yes. Um, and most states the don't. Medi- these are Medicaid. Just to clarify, these are right. yeah Medicaid recipient adults. Medicaid was it only an expansion or all? Medicaid? I think it's only the expansion. Right. And some states don't even do that in the first place. So I mean, is it? Do the are the advocates happy about that? No. Do they see it as a sign that he'll take away the rest of the health care? I don't think we know that. What about states like Virginia, who passed the expansion kind of premised on the idea of getting a work requirement? Um, uh, some someone said that they were looking at it, and it doesn't. I mean, Virginia goes ahead anyway, but I'm sure some of the Republicans who only voted for it for that reason are probably not very happy this morning. I, again, I st- I still think that. This is not going to, I think this may slow the trajectory, but I don't think it's going to stop states that are weighing expansion with work requirements. I think they're pretty confident that they'll get the approval from the administration and they see this as sort of part of a legal blip that will, and the administration's been very strong about it, and, and Bevan too, this is just something we need to fix in terms of the way that it's cast. Like they feel like they have an avenue back to this. Yeah, they, they, this didn't. This ruling didn't say there's no Medicaid work requirement that will ever pass mustard. Muster. No. <laughs> Thank you for the Canada trade wars. The uh, <laughs> muster ketchup. The um, the the yeah the condiment wars. The that's a whole other podcast. The I mean this is still this is just Act One of what may be a play with like four hundred acts. So you know I, I think it'll be two. I think it'll be at least a year or two years before we really get the end of the court rulings. How these. Um, requirements get rewritten in the states or adapted in the states. Virginia was a bipartisan compromise. Montana, a, a Democratic governor, signed a version of it um, with the Republican legislature. It's not. Um, it doesn't. That's look not this, really a work requirement, though. Well, yeah, but they could calling it a work requirement. I mean, is that what it ends up with? I it's mean, a. It's that, a community engagement requirement. Well, is that? But they're calling it a work requirement, yes. right? So I mean, it's and you know, it's it's how what they call things. And I mean, in, in some of the states that have work requirements, it's not just work. I mean, in fairness, that some of the conservative states, it's job training, it's community. It isn't community engagement. It's working, it's job training, it's certain volunteer things. Some of the complications have to do with how do you document and communicate that. I mean, that's what a lot of the advocates are worried about, that in some states it's going to be really hard for people who are fulfilling the requirements to prove it and could be fulfilling the requirements and still lose their coverage. Right. Particularly, but I mean, that's a big issue in Arkansas, Arkansas. where you have yeah. to actually, we've talked about this, you have to actually go online. online. Every, I think it's every month, too, yeah, in yeah, Arkansas. Too. Right. right. And right. I think Kentucky was every six months. If I, they're, they're, yeah, they're, every state is quite different. I mean, the whole thing is still a mess, and we don't know. Well, I wonder if Virginia, too, is a different calculus where, you know, you didn't have the expansion. And so, in a way, with the work requirement, somehow maybe you can argue that you're getting health care to people that wouldn't have had it um, because it wouldn't have passed. And so maybe there's a, a different calculus there for how they deal with this and, and whether people sue over it or not. What happens in the November elections in That's Virginia, right. whether yeah. they yeah. go completely That's Democratic as right. opposed to almost Democratic. I mean, right now it's really close. It was a, a wave last year and it made it much more Democratic, but it's still... Do they have control. elections this year? Don't they, they have state legislature? That was la- That's what last year was. Don't they, they, have they have some? Every- they have the odd off-year right, so, election. <laughs> so another year then. Yeah, yeah it's have- Virginia and New Jersey have the odd right. number year okay, elections. So we have to wait another year. But yeah. but, the, this, but Medicaid expansion and work requirements is going to be a, an issue in the midterms in a number of states. And you're already seeing that dialogue come up on the campaign trail. So it's really interesting to And watch. what we've seen in polling and what we saw, particularly in the Senate part of the repeal uh, debate last year, was that Medicaid is popular. Mm-hmm. Very surprisingly. Yeah. Well, I mean, our, I'm yeah. never sure whether people know the difference between Medicare and Medicaid when they answer a poll, but we do know that the polls show that Medicaid is popular. Well, in other because me- some editors no. don't. <laughs> 
In other Medicaid news, um, the federal government told Massachusetts last week it couldn't limit patients to a closed drug formulary. At the same time, though, uh, HHS officials said Oklahoma could experiment with so-called value-based drug contracts, where the state could get extra discounts on drugs that don't work as well as expected. Um, before we try to parse this, uh, Anna, can you explain how Medicaid pays for drugs now? There's kind of a unique system. Sure. It's the, crazy um, pants. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have an hour? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the they get sort of the lowest discount available. Um, so it's based on on that that price. And the, you know, but the idea is you have to include all of the drugs. You can't have this formulary you were talking about, um, basically a list of drugs that will be covered um, that Massachusetts wanted to have. And so, you know, Massachusetts' argument was they could save money by picking and choosing some of these drugs. Which is how almost everybody else who buys drugs saves money. Right. Except, except right. in Medicare and Medicaid, because right. if you can say, we'll give you all of our patients who have this condition if you'll give us a bigger discount. Right. Yeah. It's how, it's it's a negotiation tactic to be able to say, you know, pit companies against each other. If, uh, if these um, ex- really expensive drugs come out and there are several of them, you can really bring the cost down. And so the, I- the idea is Massachusetts. And uh, interestingly, Alex Azar has said before, you know, this was months ago when they were getting the budget proposal together that he wants states to um, experiment with formularies. And then we see this this idea get rejected. Um, and they were told essentially, well, if you want to do a formulary, you're going to have to get rid of all the rebates, all these discounts that you have access to, and you've got to negotiate from scratch, essentially. But um, you have to save as much money as the discounts. But you have to <laughs> save as much money, and who knows? You know, their idea was to negotiate on top of the discounts so that, that what they were trying to go after is these really expensive drugs that not all of them are approved based on the fact that they definitely work. Some of them are cancer drugs that are approved on you know, the possibility that they probably work and let's prove it in the market so these patients can get it. Um, and that was another thing is, is uh, Medicare and Medicaid said, wrote a letter to all states and said you have to cover every drug that's approved that way, which is called accelerated approval. Um, and that's kind of a, a blow to their um, desire to save some money. But again, this can be rewritten, right? We're not at the end of the idea of state formularies in Medicaid, which the administration has actually expressed interest in 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 the testimony that Anna referred to and also in the drug plan, right? It was, I think they said five states should experiment. So this experiment didn't pass muster, (laughs) Um, but but they can rewrite it and come back or another state could try something similar. Or maybe we're seeing that the way Oklahoma wants to do it is just their preferred way. Um, The administration really loves these value-based contracts. Pharma really loves these value-based contracts. I mean, this is something they've always put out there as like, look what we can do. We don't have to bring down list prices. We'll do these contracts, which the contracts essentially say, they get paid based on how well their drug works. So in in Oklahoma, they would negotiate um, to get a bigger rebate, a bigger discount if the drug isn't actually working very well for a patient. Um, but how so are they defining success? Is it? It's really complicated. Like a cancer drug <laughs> seems to hour? be working for four <laughs> weeks. I mean, I've seen some suggestions. I mean, you don't know if a cancer drug is working after four weeks. You know, after a year or two years or five years. So. Um, I think that's the whole issue with these value-based contracts is how do you define success and and they and need failure, and failure and they need some they need a little bit of um, some rule changing because they're afraid 
they can't talk about. So when the FDA approves a drug, let's say it's a uh, it's for a heart condition, um, in the label it's not going to say this drug is approved for this heart condition and will make sure that you don't go into the hospital more often. But what they're defining as success is going into the hospital more often, and they're afraid they can't talk about that because that's not on the label. Um, and so they need some they need some things changed to be able to discuss value-based contracts correctly. Everybody likes value-based contracts, but nobody can agree on the definition of what's a value-based contract in in both um, the pharmaceutical space and in larger. I mean, there's a lot of fighting uh, among providers about what is value-based and who defines it, and it's in the eye of the beholder. This is why Congress can't do a bipartisan cost bill, because they don't agree on it. Nobody knows how to actually bring down costs. Well, there are people who have some ideas. They're just not politically viable. I also think in Massachusetts, one thing that was really key to note was kind of the pushback from a lot of um, groups that were concerned that they wouldn't have access to certain drugs. And I think that is going to continue to be sort of a challenge for some of these formularies. Um, it, it, the, the, a lot of these groups and pharma has a lot of lobbying pressure and and concerns about their ability to access medications. So I, I do think states are going to have to grapple with that. It's like, a particularly concern uh, with mental health where mm-hmm. there are subtle differences between, you know, say 10 different antidepressants and some just don't work for some people and another one will work for somebody. And um, you Or might some have, you know, impossible side, side effects. effects. And, and it's not just mental health, but that's a, that's an example that's often brought up because the, the in there, something that as common as clinical depression, it's really biochemically different in different people. So there, people are worried about access to the right drug if there's a formulary you know, how many false starts do you have to get before you can get to the right drug? I mean, it's not that a formulary prevents somebody from ever getting another drug, but there can be many hurdles to get that drug. And as Julie mentioned, you know, they do these formularies in the commercial market, but the idea is you can shop around for a plan. If you need Medicaid, you can't shop around for the plan that covers the drug that you need to take. You are stuck with whatever the state decides. Presumably you have no money. All right, well, I want to move on. There are two stories that happened last month that we didn't get to because we were on the road um, that I thought we should at least mention. Um, The first is another court ruling, this time a federal appeals court ruled that health insurers who were supposed to be reimbursed by the federal government for money they lost in the early years of the ACA won't get paid back after all. This is no small sum. It's about $8 billion under a piece of the health law called risk corridors. Anybody want to take a stab at explaining those? Stephanie, you wrote about this. Right. I, I did just because I think this decision is is was such a blow for insurers. Um, they'd been really watching this case. This these are um, basically the risk quarter payments are is money that insurers expected that they were going to get. It's basically to help them buffer losses that they saw in the ACA market. It's almost sort of induced before they raise premiums. Right. Right. That's um, one reason they raise premiums. Yes, exactly. That That is true. But um, what happened is that uh, Republicans in Congress basically did not, uh, basically said it had to be budget neutral, which is the idea that they would not provide additional federal funding to help offset the losses that some insurers saw. So insurers really were getting just a small percentage of the amount of money that they had expected and been told that they were going to get. So I insurers, think the first year it was like 13%. Yeah, there was 12 maybe. Yeah. But 12 and a half. Yeah, yeah. Um, 12 so and a half yes, cents. 13 if you round up. Right. Uh, so and they, were, they got a lot less money than they were due. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't like it if you only paid me 12 and a half cents on the dollar you owed me. Yeah. 
Yeah, and this had been an inducement for sure right. for participating. So they they litigated, and there's been a number of lawsuits over this. And the reason this case was so important is that this sort of is the based on the court it sets it for the other lawsuits as well. It's basically saying to insurers, you're not going to be able to to get this money, um, and. It ensures very unhappy about this decision, and for the, it, well, it would have been kind of ironic for the federal government if it had gone the other way because they would have been paying all this money to this law that they don't support. Um, but it, it was a big; it's a big deal for insurers, and um, it, it. And I think also it the risk is too should there be other kind of situations in the future, how much will insurers count on what the federal government says in terms of participating in various. Um, health reform options or proposals. Well, it's basically what happened here, if I'm understanding, is that the, the ACA promised the insurers this money. Yes. Congress changed, the Republican Congress changed, I think it was on an appropriation. Yeah, yes. It changed the law. This was the whole Marco Rubio thing. Right, and well. the bailout. Well, yes. yeah. well the, thing that, yeah. the thing that Marco Rubio <laughs> took credit <laughs> for. He brought right. attention to, and yeah. he brought attention yeah. to it. He labeled it the bailout. I mean, he, he wasn't on the committee, but he did, in fact, make it an issue. And the court basically said, yes, Congress can, was not can make can change the law, so uh, the insurers are. And now some of the insurers that brought the suits were the co-ops that went broke. So right, um, yeah. So it's basically their creditors would have gotten the money. Yeah, yeah. Do we think, are they going to appeal so. this, or is this? Do you think this is done? I mean, they can appeal to the Supreme Court. Yes, they they can. The question is whether the Supreme Court will take it. And the legal experts I talked to said that they didn't have a strong inkling that they would take it. Um, there was one other potential option that they could do. Um, I forget what it was, but uh, the sense was that they might pursue that option. They might see if the Supreme Court would take it. But this was really kind of a significant blow because of that. There's not a lot of other options. All right. Well, one more story um, also from June. The Trump administration proposed a major reorganization of government cabinet departments. And HHS would be one of those changed pretty dramatically. Um, I guess they would take food stamps out of the Department of Agriculture, put it in the Department of Health and Human Services and change the name back to put, put welfare back in the name of, of the Department of Health and Human Services. What is this about? OK, so I'm just going to say really quickly because there's been so much interest in this. I really think this is like pie in the sky. Like this is just a lot of administrations have looked at trying to reorganize things. The amount of work and time that it would take, you would have to get congressional approval. But what is really important about it is the fact that they that they do want to put welfare back in the name, that this is part of a recasting Public of- Public welfare. Yes. A, a recasting of um, programs that they want to put sort of that conservative stamp on. And should they be able to group them together, they could make decisions that would affect them all, such as work requirements on them all. And that's that, it's the messaging and it's the intent that to me is particularly significant. That's my takeaway from this, at least. And also, the it's not just moving huge chunks of the federal government around and getting Congress to agree. It's having Congress, some congressional committees would lose jurisdiction. Others would gain. They don't like that. They Although, like gaining. They don't like losing. I mean, this is not likely to happen. I mean, if you were to start from scratch, there are things that have developed over the years that might not be in the right department. If you were going to start from scratch, a lot of things in healthcare and social services, you could probably come up with a better plan. But the idea of reorganizing the government to this extent is 
is unlikely. I mean, one of, one of the not insane parts of this is they want to put the Departments of Education and Labor together, which interestingly, training. right, and yeah, make it sort of the Department of Training. That would interestingly not mess be a huge threat on Capitol Hill because at least on the authorizing, no, but on the authorizing side, in both the House and the Senate, those things are already in the same committee. So no committee would, and, and you know, don't don't underestimate how, how you know, uh, how possessive members of Congress are about their committee jurisdiction and what they have power over. And it was a win for Heritage. You know, Heritage had really laid out some of these ideas as part of their focus on this as welfare and the ability to make changes to programs. And it also would have changed the FDA, which that's not a welfare issue so much, but the FDA is food and drug. It would take some of the food out of most of the food, maybe all the food out of FDA, move it to ag. Then there are Mm -hmm. some, you know, issues of on one hand, you think, oh, that would make sense. Food belongs in ag. But then you have issues of conflict of interest between protecting the farmers and protecting the food supply. We can bring a food expert on some week to talk about that if it ever would happen, but it's not happening. And we can talk about why I I always get this backwards. The Department of Agriculture regulates pepperoni pizza, but FDA regulates cheese pizza, I think. So we need a new department of pizza. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he wanted to say something. Well, I think I I just kind of learned through watching this um, and through reading about the reorganization effort that you know what I didn't realize was every administration essentially does this. That the Obama I didn't know that either until yeah. I read it. <laughs> yes. That the Obama administration had also looked into sort of a business and trade bureau that would have combined a lot of a lot of different things. Um, so maybe that's indicative of the fact that like an administration will want to put things that are they see as kind of problem makers into one bucket so they can deal better with it. But also in Congress, we've seen certain powerful chairmen over the years accumulate more jurisdiction. I mean. Energy and commerce covers Medicare and parts of Medicaid. I mean, the other way around, Medicaid and parts, parts of, of Medicare. Medicare. Right. I mean, so energy and commerce, we don't really think of health, but it has become, oh, it was mostly Chairman, then Chairman Dingell, who it, it became a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger committee, and nobody who succeeded him ever gave any of it up. So we have crazy things on in Congress, too, about what is in what committee and how things evolved. And, you know, the Congress is 250 years old. Some things, you know, I, have grown I, in certain directions that if you were starting from scratch might look different. But it, but it is sort of a, you know, it's something that gets everyone talking and get, gets a lot of attention. But I, again, I just see it as something that's so unlikely, but it, it just sort of get everyone to realize, yes, some of the ways we have things set up is kind of a mess. Right. But in this case, it's, there's there's a conversation about welfare and safety nets yep. and work requirements that has tied into the renaming of HHS, which should be the Department of, what was it, Health and Public Welfare? It was um, close and, to its name. Right. Be under, yeah. That was health, education, yeah, sure. welfare in those days. And then, um, I mean, because there's this sort of political conversation about the safety net at the same time as there's this conversation about government, it's not just an efficiency message going across. It's There's a larger social well, debate. I will just say that I was covering Congress when they finally took Social Security out of HHS and made it an independent agency. And that took something like over a decade, I mean, which was not a fairly, it did not affect anybody's, um, any congressional committee's jurisdiction at all. Uh, you know, it was still, it's finance in the Senate and ways and means in the House, but it was still a huge controversial deal. And it was only through the, the extraordinary efforts of Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan 
that it even happened at all. So that was relatively small compared to some of these bigger things that some of these presidents have been talking about. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting conversation. I just wouldn't hold your breath on that one. I mean, they were going to reinvent government. I remember, you know, Bill Clinton put Al Gore in charge of reinventing Mm -hmm. government. I mean, everybody wants to reinvent government because, you know, there are a lot of silly things in our government. But in this one, there's a, a sort of an overlap. There's a Venn diagram between the social political debate about safety net programs and this reorganization. And that's why I think this one got more attention. All right. Well, it is time for our Bill of the Month interview. This is part of a joint project between KHN and NPR. Every month, we dissect and investigate someone's real-life medical bill. If you want to send us your bill, there's a link on the KHN website, uh, and we will post it on our podcast page this week. So here's my chat with Stephanie O'Neill, who did the current Bill of the Month. Then we will come back and do our extra credits for the week. So we are happy to welcome to the podcast KHN Stephanie O'Neill, who wrote the June Bill of the Month story. That's our joint project between Kaiser Health News and NPR, spotlighting some really outrageous health charges and helping consumers avoid them if possible. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you, Julie. So tell us about this month's subjects. I guess this is a family that suffered from some very bad luck, right? Oh, yes. Um, And uh, Angel Dean Lopez is the dad and Theo is the son. And so what happened was um, the dad, like a lot of dads, loves to do projects with his kids. So every year the local school has this Pinewood Derby. And I don't know if you know what Pinewood Derby cars are, but they're these little race cars like the Boy Scouts use them, a little block of wood. And you get the block of wood, the wheels, and then you shape the wood into some whimsical car. So like in past years, they've done ice cream cones and a penguin and an Altoids peppermint box. This family's very creative. And so um, this one year in 2016, in the fall of 2016, Theo, who was then uh, nine years old, he wanted to do a um, San Pellegrino bottle. So dad is like, okay, we'll do that. And then the other two kids, his sisters also wanted to do cars. So this was a very busy uh, season for the father. The father is a television writer and he was slammed with deadlines. And so it was like the night before the derby, and he's got three cars he's got to shape for the kids before they can, you know, decorate and paint them. So he's like, okay, how can I do this faster? And he's working with a router. And I don't know if you know what a, a I don't know if you know what a router is, but it's a handheld power tool with a fast spinning interchangeable blade that shaves and shapes wood. So and he decides, you know what, I'm going to flip it upside down and I'm going to put the wood in my hand and run the wood over the router. That way it can kind of control it better, which is exactly the wrong thing to do, as he knows. And he was doing that and his hand slips and it kind of gets mangled in the router. It was rather awful. And so he was, uh, he went off to the hospital. He actually had to stay for two nights. He had this complex surgery, later had another surgery to get a pen removed from his finger. He needs more surgery. Nine days later, Theo and the family are at um, their friend's house, and they're carving pumpkins. But because dad is immobilized, he's got a cast on his hand, he can't help. So Theo, who was, a, who was nine years old, was cutting a pumpkin, and as he was cutting, his hand slipped on the knife, and he sliced his hand, also his right hand. Both of them had right hand injuries. It cut the tendon. Um, he had to have surgery. So now we had a situation with father and son having almost identical injuries and then they both have surgery and then afterwards in order to make their hands work they needed something called occupational therapy 
And bef- before we get to occupational therapy, these guys have health insurance, right? This is this is not an uninsured family. This is not an uninsured family. So dad has been, uh, he's a, a veteran television writer, and he's got one of the best insurance uh, plans in the nation. It's from the Writers Guild of America. This is such a good plan, Julie, that um, they're, well, it's also, it's super robust, but also their premium uh Father Angel Dean Lopez gets it for free, and the family, his family of wife and uh, three children, together, all of them is 50 bucks a month premium. So that's kind of unheard of these days. And uh, the other thing is their deductibles are extremely low. They were $300 a person. Now they've gone up this year to $400 a person. So really great plan. He's had it for two decades. He's never worried about it. So he's not thinking anything about bills when he goes to the hospital, and he's not thinking about that when he's getting his therapy afterwards and when he's getting his son's therapy. All right, so they go off to occupational therapy. What is that? So occupational therapy focuses on um, improving a person's ability to fully engage in what are called uh, activities of daily living. Things like getting dressed, uh, bathing, using a computer keyboard to type your stories or scripts, you know, stuff like that. Um, And that's a little bit different from physical therapy, which... um, probably people are more familiar with, that focuses on improving movement of the human body, usually after some sort of injury. So stuff like, you know, increasing mobility, aligning bones, lessening pain, stuff like that. So father and son both went for occupational therapy so they could use their right hands again. Um, One would have thought since they had this great insurance, it would have been covered, but that's not exactly what happened, right? Yes. Much to the horror of Angel Dean Lopez and his wife, they find out that their insurance does not pay very much at all for occupational therapy. And so they get these bills that are um, several hundred dollars and for each therapy session, and their insurance is paying only 60 bucks for each therapy session. So in the end, they were they were being asked to pay in the thousands, right? By the time they were they were finished with their therapy? Right. So they start getting these bills and and it's one thing, like, if it was one person and you have, like, maybe so many visits, you're like, oh, I have to pay, you know, $200 out of pocket for this visit. Theo had about a year's worth of therapy, occupational therapy, to get his hand moving again. And his father had several months, but a lot of therapy. So it was that coincidence of both of them having to, you know, the same kind of injury and the same type of occupational therapy that really underscored this weakness in the insurance plan. And where the weakness was was that, This insurance plan classifies occupational therapy and physical therapy as alternative treatment on, you know, along the lines of, uh, you know, acupuncture and um, uh, chiropractic. And so they were kind of flabbergasted to find that out because they're like, well, no, this is something that's really needed. The doctor prescribed it. And, you know, you might think that you get surgery and you're all fine, but that's not the case. In fact, when um, the father got his surgery, his hand was immobilized in a cast for two months And even though only one finger was affected in the accident, um, all of his fingers were swollen and he couldn't move them. So he needed therapy to get his hands moving. And if he couldn't get his hands moving, he couldn't type those television scripts. Same thing with Theo. It's his right hand. I mean, he plays ball. He he plays bluegrass fiddle. He has to write in school. You know, that's a very important um, ability to have is have full function of your hands. So um, what do other consumers take away from this? What Are there things that they should have asked? Are there things that you should ask? Should you, should you make sure that your insurance policy covers occupational therapy? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I didn't even think about doing this. But, you know, if you have a choice for insurance, you know, you definitely want to look to see, hey, is this kind of thing covered? Because, you know, those types of accidents are fairly, you know, common, maybe not 
the way they happened to the Lopez family. But, you know, we, we injure ourselves and we need this therapy afterwards to, to take care of our bodies and get us back into, you know, functioning form. But um, so one thing is to, you know, take a look at your insurance, see what it has. If you're stuck and you only have one choice for insurance, you could try to negotiate with your insurance or talk to them beforehand about, hey, do you know that this is categorized in this odd spot? In this case, I talked to different experts to about how the Writers Guild classifies this kind of care. And they said that was really odd. So what um, Mr. Lopez did was he contacted them, wrote a four-page letter of appeal. It was denied, but the you know there was some inkling that maybe they would change it for other people in the future. So you always want to you know appeal decisions with your insurance, talk to them, and then try to negotiate. And if you're stuck with a big bill. Uh, the Lopez's have to pay more than $8,500 for this occupational therapy that they weren't expecting to pay. And if you get a bill like that, then try to negotiate with the hospitals and see if you can get it knocked down a little bit. So, And did they try to do that? Actually, he didn't. <laughs> He's paying full <laughs> He just <rate>. paid it. <laughs> you know, and here's the problem, Julie. He, his wife is a – this is just for you and me. His wife is a doctor, and she works at Children's Hospital, and he just felt weird. He said trying to negotiate – I don't know why he felt weird, but negotiating that, that down. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. <laughs> so. so bottom line, um, you should try to find out uh, what, what your insurance policy covers. Uh, if your therapist is part of your plan, and if not, be prepared to negotiate. Absolutely. And even if they are part of the plan, you know, again, you might get some really low reimbursement. And if that's the case, try to negotiate there too. Great. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie O'Neill. Um, and you can read Stephanie's entire story at khn.org and listen to it at npr.org. Thank you, Julie. Okay, we are back. It's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Who wants to go first this week? Joanne. Uh, This is a piece in the Washington Post by Amy Ellis Nutt. College students are forming mental health clubs, and they're making a difference. This is about a movement uh, across campuses and colleges, community colleges where mental health services are often really paltry, and now high schools. And they're finding that these student clubs are reducing the stigma of mental health, of seeking, of having a mental health problem or of needing help. It's making it easier for people to ask for help. Um, One of the questions I had reading this story, it was quite interesting. It it said it improved uh, peer-to-peer support, and I I didn't exactly understand what that consisted of. This particular article didn't say it, but given the teen suicide rate, given the adult suicide rate, given the depression rate, given the mental illness, the the opioid addiction, given the overwhelming crisis we have with mental health, heartbreaking crisis with mental health in this country. This is a step that is seemingly beginning to help young people, and it doesn't cost a lot of money. Interesting. Stephanie? Uh, I have a story from uh, Kaiser Health News called uh, Looking at um, Rising Cost of PrEP to Prevent HIV Infection Pushes It Out of Reach for Many, and it's by Shafali Luthra and Anna Gorman. Um, and this is a really good story um, because it's not necessarily a new issue. This is on an HIV prevention pill that has been shown to be quite effective, like 90% effective, I believe. But the, this lays out sort of the challenge that public health officials are facing because they're trying to get more individuals, especially low-income people, to have access to this medication. But the problem is that it has gone up in price. I believe it was like 45% from its wholesale price from when it first debuted. And at the same time, uh, people are paying more out of pocket for their health care costs. And there is... Um, more and more hurdles to getting coupons that people can use to help offset the costs. So all of these are kind of creating this perfect storm as public health officials try to roll out this medication to areas where it's needed. At the same time, 
it's getting harder and harder for people to actually afford and pay for this medication. Back to what we were talking to earlier. Anna? This is by Katie Thomas with the New York Times. It's um, emergency rooms run out of vital drugs and patients are feeling it. So it's about, um, you know, summers, obviously, when there are a lot more trauma injuries coming into hospitals. And the hospitals are really worried because they are running out of really simple drugs, um, morphine, hydromorphone, things like that, painkillers, other other drugs, heart drugs. Um, and these are mostly sterile injectables. So those are the liquids that are, are being injected into patients. And and she gets into the part of the reason um, is that Pfizer um, now owns, it's, it's been a, several years, but it owns Hospira, which was a sterile injectable drug maker. And the problems are pretty systemic in their manufacturing, and they've just had so many issues, um, particles in the drugs, you know, cardboard, glass, different things. And so they're running into shortages. Um, the thing is, is they're not drugs that make a lot of money. So there's not a lot of other companies that are making them. And so we're seeing this kind of awful um, outcome that patients aren't getting the drugs they need when they go to the hospital. It's really amazing. I mean, if you think about it, I also did a story in this. And I was talking to surgeons who are using glass canisters to try and hold the medication because they have so little. They're trying to reuse. I have a friend who recently had surgery, and they were trying to come up with other options for him because they didn't know if they could get the medication. And this is a manufacturing problem, as Anna it, noted it, but it also yeah. fixing it is sort of colliding with some DEA rules that have to Although do with the did, opioid crisis. Although they did um, allow the, for a shift in terms of what manufacturers could get access to. But so, it takes but a long time it for that to try it, it, it down. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, another scary story. Well, mine is an investigation done by my cage and colleagues, Melissa Bailey and Janelle and Alicia. It's called Unlocked and Loaded Families Confront Dementia and Guns. And it is a very scary documentation of just how many guns are in the homes of dementia patients who have impaired or declining mental faculties, uh, as they put it in the story. The numbers themselves are kind of terrifying. 45% of people 65 and older have guns in their households, while 9% of that same population have been diagnosed with dementia. It is very sobering and a quite a good read. Yeah, original. I had not seen. I mean, I, I tweeted this story and I said I've written about dementia and I've written about guns and I never even thought about the combination. And it's really good reporting. All right. Well, that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Ravner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. At Steph Armour One. At Anna Edney. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.